In the book of James, chapter 1, James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There are several things in the Bible that I think are difficult, and there are some things in the Bible that I think we cannot comprehend as human beings. For example, Jesus was God, and Jesus was man. God can't be tempted. Man can't forgive sins. Jesus did both. I I can't comprehend that, because when I went to school, A equals B, B equals C... But C does not equal A in this in this case. That's just something that we accept that Jesus was God, Jesus was man. But physically, in our in our minds, that does not work for us. I think there are other things like this passage that are difficult. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Yeah, man, I was just I was so excited. Oh man, this terrible thing happened to me. You would not believe it. Okay, that's kind of hard to comprehend, right? That's not the way our minds work. But another one in this passage is being perfect. These things will make you perfect. How are we going to be perfect? What is it that does that? And you consider Matthew chapter 5 and 48, and it says, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow, that is... That is way up there. That is a high standard. So what is it that can get us to that point? Maybe the old law. Was that the way to do it? In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 11, it says, Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? So, was the law able to do it? No. In fact, down in verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. It wasn't able to do that. But on the other hand, verse 19, there is the a bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. A better hope? The law couldn't do it, but he mentions a better hope. Going over to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year after year which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. The law cannot do it. But again, it mentions this good things to come. There's something that can, but it wasn't the law. So what was it? Well, looking at Galatians chapter 3, maybe looking at what it was not in Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be, for if a law had been given which was able to impart life... 
then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. Law could not impart life. And I think what he's saying here, he doesn't mention, just say, the old law could not impart life. He says law could not impart life. Verse 22, but the scripture has been shut up. But the scripture has shut up all men under sin. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It was not a law that could make us perfect. Referencing this thing now, the faith in Jesus Christ. Continuing verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. In Romans chapter 7, Paul explains it. Like this. Romans chapter 7 and verse 21, beginning. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind. And making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Who? Verse 25. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. Therefore, or There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This passage indicating how the physical body is, is kind of like that law and trying to keep it physically. He's not able to do that. He's saying what keeping the law could not do in verse 3, God did. And God is the one that makes us perfect. In verse 4, he looks at us. We're viewed as, as having kept the law perfectly. You can't do it, but because he sent Jesus to, to, as that sacrifice, he can now look at us and view us as if we're perfect. God is the one that does the perfecting. There's several passages that, that give the same idea, the same thought in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. Hebrews 10 and verse 14, if I can find it, 
For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Over in chapter 12 of Hebrews, starting in 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. So he's making this contrast. He was talking about how they went before this mountain, this Sinai, and the trembling, and the and the law, and the things that took place there. And now he's comparing this in verse 22. But you've come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. We have a better mountain than what they had. They had Mount Sinai. They had the law. But we have a better system than that. They could never be perfect under that law. We can be perfect under this new system. Not because we keep it perfectly, but because of what God does what God did and what he continues to do, he looks at us and says, you are perfect. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in verse 23, Several of the epistles have this toward the end of it and talks about this same concept. Here's just a couple of them. In chapter in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the God of peace that does that. In Jude, the last chapter, or the last verses of the book of Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. God is the one that makes us stand and makes us perfect. We don't make ourselves perfect. We can't. It is not possible. It is not possible through a keeping of law to make ourselves perfect. We need someone else that can do that. Just a couple more that confirm that idea in first Peter chapter five. First Peter chapter five and verse ten. And after you have suffered for a little while, back to that idea of suffering, you should be joyful at this. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen and establish you. And in Philemon chapter 1, verses 
Uh, sorry, that would be Philippians, chapter one. Philippians chapter one, starting in verse three. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Back over to the book of Romans, in chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, at the end of, uh, of this letter... Starting in verse 25, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. And to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. If salvation is based on law-keeping, we all fail. Everyone in the old law failed. Every single one. Case given, you know, an example. God said, here's, here's the proof, here's the example. I gave you an old, uh, the law, the law from Sinai. Everyone failed. So I'm going to put in a new system. And this new system is going to allow you to be perfect. How am I going to be perfect? Well, there's some rules and there's some laws to follow. Is that how I'm going to be made perfect? Do I need to follow those to be made perfect? All the passages that we looked at say that God is what makes us perfect, not the following of those laws, not the keeping them perfectly, Because you can't. You can't do it. You need some other system to work on that. Something else. And here at the end of this uh, book of Romans, it says, God um, has done this and leads to obedience of faith. It's the faith in God that causes us, that makes us want to follow his rules. God is giving us a system where we can be perfect. God is making us perfect. And I want to follow the one that is giving me those rules. I know those are good for me. So I have an obedience of faith. God gives life and makes us perfect because... I believe in him. I have faith in him. I trust in him. Not because I keep every rule perfectly. Because if that were the case, I would fail. I cannot do that. I keep the rules because I believe. You can't keep enough rules. You can't follow enough laws. You can't obey enough laws to get to that perfection. It's not possible. No matter how many laws you keep, you will still fall short. 
it doesn't matter how many rules you keep, you will never be perfect by keeping the rules. You need something else. You need another system. And if we accept that idea, if we, if we understand that, it changes the way we view the rules. They no longer become such a burden and trying so hard to keep every rule perfectly. I look at that the way the Jews did. We sometimes look at it the way the Jews looked at the Sabbath. Remember how it talks about how they, how they just couldn't wait for the Sabbath to get over so they could get back to work, so they could get back in some cases, so we can get back to cheating people out of their money. That's how they viewed the Sabbath. It was such a burden. And they made all these rules that they had to follow. And what did Jesus, what did God intend with the Sabbath? This was a gift to man. But when we look at Christ's laws, His rules, God's laws for us, and recognize that they are not what is making us perfect, they are what God wants us to do because we have faith in Him, because we trust Him. They're not a burden then. They're now, it's like, I want to follow this, this great, wonderful being, this person that is giving me salvation. I'm going to do everything I can to please him, to follow him, because he's great. I think this is one of those things in the Bible that's hard to understand. I mean, we love rules, don't we? We love rules and we love checklists. You know, we want... Five steps of salvation and acts of worship and and all these things and we can check them off and we can go down because because that's the way our physical brains work our earthly minds that's the way you do your job right you check things off on your job that's the way we do most things in our physical lives so I think this is another thing that is hard to comprehend But do you mean to tell me that I can be saved without keeping all of these laws perfectly? Work that backwards. Can you keep all these laws perfectly? No, you can't. Therefore, does that mean you can't be saved? So can... I be saved without keeping all of these laws perfectly? Yes. Because any other answer condemns you and me. Another thing that this does, this concept, it opens this idea of the possibility of growth. Because if I'm going to keep the law perfect, I have to know it perfectly. And I have to know every aspect of it. I have to know the answer to every passage. I have to study it and I have to know exactly what it means. Because if I don't, then I'm not keeping it perfectly. And I'm lost again because of that. Now there are those, I've heard brethren that would tell you that you can know every passage and what to do from that. And I totally disagree with that. I think there are some passages that we just don't know. Let me ask you this question. The women that think that they should wear the head covering, 
Are they the ones going to hell? Or is it the ones that don't think they need to wear the head covering? It's it's an obvious debate. There's some that view it both ways. But we have to know the answer if we're saved by knowing and keeping every law perfectly. There are many things that way that I think even in this room there's a number of things that we would not all agree on perfectly. But if we're saved by keeping it perfectly, then we need to know that. But what it does, it allows us to grow in some of these things too. It allows us to to uh, learn one day something that, that we didn't know before. And not look at that and say, man, I was lost last week because I didn't know this. But now I know it, so I'm saved. And every time I hear this, you know, people will say, well, yeah, you, you can know exactly. And, and I've heard people, you know, give sermons. Well, when we, how we know what God wants us to do. We know by, you know, the command and the example and the inference type thing. And there's two reasons why that doesn't work at all. Number one, that's the only way to communicate. Command, example, or inference. If I send you a text, it's one of those three. There's no other way to communicate. I mean, how else would you get it? Osmosis or something? So that's, that doesn't make any sense to use that. And secondly, the reason it doesn't work is because then I have to decide, is that command directed at me? Is that an approved example or not? And what exactly is that inference? And what is he inferring? We still have to read the passage and decide what God wants us to gain from it. There's no magic formula, unless there's some other formula that tells me whether or not the command is directed to me or not, which I haven't heard of that one yet. So it gives us room to grow in these things. Because when I hear somebody demand compliance to some rule that they have derived from a passage... One of the things I always think of is the Ethiopian eunuch. Peter ran along and he jumped in the chariot and taught him and sent him to another country to start another work there, another church. So Peter jumped in this chariot and he rode with him for three days. And he told him every single thing that he could possibly need to know and the rules of everything. He told him, you know, when to meet, how many times to meet, when to take the Lord's Supper. Uh, you know, he had to tell him all about, you know, sponsoring churches and whether or not to support orphans' homes. And, of course, the biggest one, he had to tell him what name to put on the building when he built his church building. I mean, how could the Ethiopian have gotten all this stuff exactly right to keep the law perfectly to be saved? Yet there are many of these things that we will demand from one another to remain in fellowship with them. Do you think the Ethiopian, when he started getting other letters from Jerusalem and other Christians and reading more, it's like, oh, look at this. We need, we need to be doing this. And he grew in those things. And he started doing as he learned those things. So after the Ethiopian was baptized, should he have been rejoicing? Absolutely, because he was saved. Not because he was keeping all the rules perfectly, but because God made him perfect at that point. 
And then he was allowed to continue to grow. One of the problems with this is it sounds like faith only. And we dare not preach anything that sounds like faith only because that's what Calvinism teaches, you know, the perseverance of the saints and and those types of things. But can I say that since when do we not preach what it says because it sounds like something that somebody else might preach that we don't agree with everything that they do or say? And I wonder sometimes if we don't try to steer away from those things so far that we end up preaching it the other way. Yeah, we, we, we know you can't be saved by faith only, and I agree. So we're going to preach over here. It's like when you went to sell your car, you know, and you owed like $2,000 on your car. And you put it on Craigslist, and you needed to get $2,000 to break even. So how much did you put it on Craigslist for? 2500 right? Why? So that when you get done, and when you all get done, you end up right where you want to be in the middle. Or, if you've ever uh, hosted, like, college kids in your house, like we do from time to time, and you want to go somewhere, you need to be to an event, and you tell them, you know, the event, you need to leave, you know that you need to be walking out the door at 6 o'clock. And what do you tell those college kids? Say, be ready to go at six? Oh no. <laughs> no, you need to be, you need to be ready to go at 545. That's what I tell them. You need to be ready to go at 545 and you might get out of the door. Is that how we, so is that how we preach the scripture? Let's preach, you know, really strong on the law keeping because some people think it's saved by faith only and we'll get them right down the middle. And now, now we're all in the right in the right place. We almost preach it completely opposite to where we're preaching saved by works only. We go from getting away from this once saved, always saved, to the point that we may say once saved, well, maybe I'm saved. I want to read an article, part of it. One of the unexpected side effects of my diagnosis has been that these days I find that I have more in common with our oldest members. I would share with them the knowledge that our time on earth is short, which naturally draws our thoughts to the eternal destination, our eternal destination. I was discussing this subject with an older sister a week or two ago. And her comment about the judgment was, I don't know if I'm good enough. She was worried about how she was going to fare. To put this statement in context, a couple of minutes later she told me with complete sincerity that if she could take my ALS on herself, she would. This is a woman with such love in her heart that she's literally willing to die in the place of a brother in Christ. And she's concerned about whether she's a sheep or a goat. To be frank, I regard this as an indictment of myself and my preaching brethren. 
I fear that we spend so much time trying to convince backsliders of their danger that we unwittingly plant seeds of doubt in the hearts of the most faithful. However well-intentioned, that's not declaring the whole counsel of God. We've taken the hope that's talked about in the Bible, the hope of salvation. Sometimes we take that and we make it an I hope so instead of the hope that we have. We can have confidence in our salvation. If we trust in God... God is able to render us, to look at us as perfect, even when we aren't. First John, of course, talks about that, saying how we can know. We know of our salvation. We can be confident because it's God that's doing it, not us. It's God that is sanctifying us. If we're responsible for it, if we're responsible for keeping it perfectly, for attaining salvation by what we do, then we have good reason to fret. Because we cannot attain it by our works. A couple other assurances that we have from the Bible in John chapter 10. In verse 18, kind of in this section, he's talking about the shepherd and the different types of shepherds that might come in and and watch over the flock or not watch over the flock. But he says he's the good shepherd. Uh, I think I got the wrong verse. It's in that section there talking about the shepherd. Maybe back up. I'm the good shepherd, the good sheep. uh, Verse 11 lays down his life for the sheep. He talks about the hireling. Um, verse 12, And not the shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, behold, beholds the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hireling. Verse 14, I'm the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They may hear my voice. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. And those that are his, and he has his sheep, and they cannot be snatched out of his hand. There's no way that they can be, there's no other power, there's no other person, there's no other thing that can, that can overpower Jesus and take those sheep away. That is comforting. But every time we study this in a Bible study, one of the first comments will be, yeah, but you can leave. Is that what you, is that what you get out of this passage? Okay, yes, you can. You can leave. 
But that's not the beauty of this passage. That's not what he's trying to point out. But that's usually what we point out. There's one other we do a similar thing, and that's in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, beginning. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also... How will he not also, with him, freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? What can separate us? So the question, what can separate us from the love of God? And you'll hear things. You'll hear people say, well, yeah, but we can we can leave. We can leave that. I don't think you can. I would say you're wrong in this passage. You cannot escape the love of God. That doesn't mean you're saved. But God so loved the world. Who is that? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Oh, he loved all those Christians, the people that obeyed him. That's why he gave his son. No, he loved the sinners. He loved you and me and gave his son. He loved. Can you separate yourself from that? It's like, no, God, I don't want any part of that sacrifice. You don't need to love me. We can't separate ourselves from the love of God. We have that kind of a God that's looking out for us and wants us to be saved. He's doing all of these things that he can to get us to that point. He's the one that perfects us. We obey him because we love him and because we have faith in him and we trust that he's the one to follow to get us there to eternal life. That's where I want to be. That's the God I want to serve. And I'm going to serve him the best that I can. And I'm not going to do it perfect. I'm going to mess up over and over. But God's not standing up there with the light switch and, oh, you sin, you're, you're, you're lost. It's like you ask for forgiveness. Oh, there, light switch back on. Now you're back in. And our only hope is that we die when the switch is on. And we have to, we have to fret about whether, whether or not we've made some mistake that God's, up. Oh, you're out. But we have a loving God that looks at us and says, this child has faith in me. This, this, this person is trying to obey me and doing their best with that. And because they have faith in me and trust in me, perfect. He writes it down. They're perfect. I can view them as perfect. That's wonderful, isn't it? 
That's a wonderful God. Do you want to be part of that? You need to have that faith in God and the obedience of that faith to do what He wants us to do. If you're subject to this, let us know while we sing.